you're new, uh, this is week 10 of a series called The Struggle is Real. And we are moving into the third part of it called The World. Uh, it has all been a focused around three different enemies of the soul. And um, one of those is the devil, one of those is the flesh, we talked about the last two weeks, and the other one is the world. And so if you're new to this conversation, um, I would encourage you to go back and listen because there's been a lot we've covered. Ultimately, what the world is, is it's the collective result of every single one of us um, after the garden. And we'll get into that here in a second. Um, but it's interesting that Jesus talks about the world um, in his final conversation with his disciples um, in John chapter 15. We're going to throw this on the screen for you. Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to, to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So Jesus is describing um, this concept of the world to his disciples, and it seems to be a major theme throughout Jesus' teaching. So if you were to, um, which some of you are really good at, um, when someone speaks, and that speaker, if you hear them, say, say, for instance, you hear that person every week. And that person has certain idiosyncrasies that they say over and over and over again, just hypothetically. You can start to pick up on kind of major themes, right? Jesus has this going on. It's not that you guys do this to me, I know, but, but Jesus has this going on. And a major theme for Jesus is the world. And it does not vanish with Jesus. Like when Jesus leaves, it, it doesn't vanish with him. It has continued on with other New Testament writers. In fact, one of his disciples, John, writes this in 1 John. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So, last night, I'm at a birthday party, and I'm over at this, at like an appetizer table, and right next to it's the DJ person, and this older lady comes up to me and she says, oh, I love the Rolling Stones. No, she said, no, sorry. She says, I used to love the Rolling Stones. And then she puts her hand on my arm and says, when I was in the world. <laughs> and then I was feeling a little frisky and I said, where are you now? 
And she's like, you know what I mean. And I was sad because I do know what she means. And it's this idea. <laughs> like, I grew up with this paradigm. I don't know if you guys grew up going to church and stuff. And I, and I, and I confessed all this stuff to you a few weeks ago. Um, things that were, there were just not good, you know, in the world I grew up in to, like, Dungeons and Dragons. You remember that conversation? And um, so certain movies, so anything really that's like uh, any area of art or entertainment that the Christian world finds icky, okay? Certain movies, art, entertainment, um, the Smurfs, um, that go back on that. Dancing, whew, um, parties, um, some places, pants. The, the thing is, no, for women, some places, they don't let you wear pants. Rock and roll, you know. And if you participate in the, these things, okay, you are worldly. You ever heard that before? You guys aren't worldly. But it, is this really what Jesus meant by the world? Right? Is the Rolling Stones what Jesus meant by the world? Now, in scriptures... Words have many meanings, and we talked about this the other day when we talked about, um, uh, what did we talk about? Well, let's just throw another concept out there, like the word ball. You could bounce a ball, you could go to a ball, and you can have a ball, right? Words have different meanings. Same thing with scripture, cosmos is the word for world in the Greek. Now, it can mean like this, Romans 1.20. It can actually mean the actual world, the actual earth, planet earth. Um, the second meaning would be humanity. So the football verse, okay? For God so loved the world, okay? That is, um, that's, that's another meaning for uh, uh, the, the cosmos, the world, humanity. But for Jesus, he's actually talking about a different version of the meaning the world. And I think it's best defined by, let me give you a few different definitions by smart people. This is Cornelius Plantinga, and he wrote this, a culture, a culture that patterns of, the patterns of beliefs, social forms, dispositions, and values that are institutionalized in people's collective life. And that sounds pretty nerdy. Here's Dallas Willard. Our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. And here's my definition. It's probably lame. The world is a system of ideas, values, practices, social norms that are institutional in a culture organized around the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. Okay. Things that just basically become normal over time. So it's just that idea that in the garden, when the devil comes at Eve, um, three things kind of happen in that exchange. Adam and Eve begin to seize autonomy from God. They separate from God's presence, and they define good and evil based on their own desires. So that would be this idea of the world, things that just become normal in us. Now, this all sounds old-fashioned to you, so I'm going to give you an example. Back in 2000, 
Um, there was the MTV, uh, MTV Music Awards. Raise your hand if you were not born yet. I just need to know personally. Okay, a few of you. All right. So back in the day, MTV used to show music. They used to have like MTV music videos and stuff like that, and you could actually watch music videos. I grew up on it all. And in 2000, at the MTV Music Awards, there was a guy named Sean Fanning. And Sean Fanning gets up on stage. And Sean, anybody know who Sean Fanning is? He was the co-starter of a, of a small little company called Napster. Napster was the first ever music file sharing service in the world. So back in the day, if you wanted music, you used to have to go to a store and buy a whole album, and then you could listen to it um, in your car or whatever. And, and back in the day, it was cassette tapes, and back in the further day, it was vinyl, and then, you know, A-track, anybody? And then cassette tapes, and then CDs. I don't know if you've seen those before. Just kidding. So back in the day, the internet was booming, things like that, and Sean Fanning and his buddies decided there would, there's got to be a way to share digital files of music with each other. Lo and behold, Napster was started, and one of the things that um, was really interesting is in 2000, um, there was this little movie coming out, and it was called Mission Impossible 2. And Mission the, 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 the creators of Mission Impossible 2 decided that, that they wanted a big-name band to do the sound, a, a theme soundtrack for it. And so they call up my boys Metallica. And so Metallica writes a special song for this called I Disappear. And before the song is even released, a radio station plays it. A Northern California radio station is playing this song. They're like, everybody, we got this song, new song from Metallica. And Lars Ulrich, the drummer from Metallica, is driving to the studio to finish mastering the song. And he hears the song on the radio. They find out after a whole lot of, they trace it all the way back to Napster. Now, Metallica sues Napster says, you can't just be playing our music and giving our music out for free. This is a breach. This is theft, is what this is. And so they go to war with Napster, and it's like a clear-cut case. It's like, yeah, you know, like any old lawyer could win this one. And so they win a settlement against Napster. They win a a case, um, the legal case against Napster, but then the MTV Music Awards comes. Metallica is like in the front row. Sean Fanning is actually presenting an award with, uh, what's that guy's name that used to do MTV? What? Carson Daly. Carson Daly, that's it. So he's up there with Carson Daly, and he's wearing a Metallica shirt. Like, it's like in your face. And Carson says, hey, I like your shirt. And the guy goes, yeah, a buddy of mine shared it with me. Like, it was like this moment that just, like, broke the music world. 
And then they panned to Metallica, and they were not amused, right? Well, turns out everybody still knows who Metallica is, and no one really knew who Sean Man uh, Fanning was after that. The point is, is that Metallica won in the courts, but they actually lost in the court of public opinion. Like, from that moment on, people were like, Metallica sucks, man. They're just like, you know, and they were just, everybody was angry at Metallica because Metallica had this bold right to say, you should pay for our music, right? And so what became, okay, what maybe 20 years before that would have been like, yeah, that stealing became something normalized. And people just got used to stealing each Stealing music. And if you were around for that time, you've, you probably can remember, um, like, oh, wait, where'd you get this? I don't know. And we used to have these, like, CD cases full of, like, uh, CDs with Sharpie on them, right? And it was just like, hey, let me borrow that. Let me steal that. You know, that kind of stuff. And so all of it just became normalized. And so here's the thing. So what something maybe was before, like flakiness, is now free-spiritedness, you know? How something can change from one social thing to something totally acceptable. Immaturity is the new adventurous, right? Divorce is the new act of courage. Greed is now free-market capitalism. Lust is the new love. Denouncing your faith is liberation. And these things that, you know, what was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned. And, and those who refuse to celebrate are now condemned. And I know this sounds like uh, some of you are probably going, hey, okay, listen, this sounds like we're getting really into some very puritanical, fundamentalist talk here. But I just believe that the pull and the, and the central pull of the world is actually strong right now, is as strong as it ever has been. And um, I think there's two broad areas, I think just as we finish, two broad areas to talk about as a church. How the church how a community of followers of believers have been colonized by the world. The first one is syncretism, and the second one is the choosing your own adventure. Let me just talk about the first one here real quick. Syncretism is an idea that comes all the way through Scripture about how a community of people can worship Yahweh and at the same time do everything the other nations do. Right? So worship Yahweh and Baal. Worship Yahweh and sacrifice to this God. And so this idea of like pushing, like syncretizing both things together. So for us, what does this look like? Maybe it's how we view our money. Maybe it's how we view our money. Is it anything different than how the world views money? How is our spending different than the world? Are we just as addicted to our phones as everybody else? You know, those kind of conversations. And we'll get into that here in a little bit more. And we might say things, well, well Ryan, that's just how things are. 
And I would, I would caution against that phrase. The second idea is this, that we can somehow choose our own adventure in following Jesus. That saying, like, I can follow Jesus, but I'm going to follow Jesus kind of like the way I want to follow Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say yes to this following Jesus part and maybe no to this. And it's like this idea of like once a church-going follower of Jesus decides that they're going to rise, like rise above this archaic version of following Jesus and, and just kind of do it yourself, you know, like pick and choose. Like, hey, I don't like what scripture says here. I'm just going to go with this. Um, I'm going to keep it kind of me and God. Um, I'm not going to involve anybody else in my life. I'm not going to listen to anybody else, especially not going to listen to them if they're kind of pushing in on some things in my life. Or, or we maybe the, we adopt like this hyper-consumeristic view of following Jesus, right? Um, if I don't like it, I'll, I'll throw it out, and, and, and I'll call the rest of it following Jesus. There's this quote from a guy named David Tackle I want to read to you. He says, an alarming number of Christians are very prone to viewing their faith as largely a volunteer enterprise. They pick and choose which values they wish to adopt from Scripture and which they will adopt from dominant culture. This is syncretistic. This syncretistic approach to faith is only possible because of an unexamined assumption that we are in charge of our doctrine, our dogma, and morals rather than God. Much of its appeals lies in the ability to blend in with the surrounding culture, minimize our discomfort, and still hold to the illusion of being Christian-like in one's behavior, right? I think we all feel this. This is not a new idea. I mean, this isn't, like, hopefully this isn't a new idea to you. That there is such a pull on us with everything in our culture and how our culture set up and how our culture operates and how people show revenge and favoritism and try to get power over each other, a sexual ethic. All these things are like pulling at us. Like we've said over and over again, we're all being formed unintentionally. And so the combat that is actually to be formed intentionally. Deuteronomy 29, I was reading it this week, and it messed me up. And I want, this is, this is uh, God talking through Moses, kind of a reminder to the people of Israel about who they are and where they've been and where they're going. And listen to this. You yourselves know how we lived in Egypt and how we passed through the countries on the way here. You saw among them their detestable images and idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold. Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today, whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. Listen to this. When such a person hears the words of this oath, And they evoke a blessing on themselves, thinking, I will be safe. Even though I persist in going my own way, they will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. It's pretty powerful. The fact that we could invoke 
a blessing on ourselves. It's a pretty powerful word. So a few questions for me, from me to you, from me to me, from me to us. Let's go with that. What deceitful ideas mixed with my own disordered desires, we talked about that the last couple of weeks, have become normalized in me, have just become normalized. What has happened to me? Like, where have I been compromised? More, where have I been more interested in being comfortable in the world around me? And where have I listened more to the voice of the world more than the voice of the Spirit? Remember, the strategy of the devil is deceitful ideas that play to our own disordered desires, because you have them and I have them, that then get normalized in the world around us. They just become normal. And remember, Satan comes to Eve with, uh, he doesn't come to her with like a stick and, and a, a drone. <laughs> he comes at her with an idea. And that is what begins to take hold. And here's the thing, that you and I, we hear what we want to hear most of the time. And our flesh, our disordered desires, they actually are desperate for affirmation all of the time. And we become masters of our own behavior justification. Really good at this. Really good at just kind of massaging things to work. And this normalized behavior becomes more and more difficult to overcome the more normalized it gets. So, when someone's fighting a digital addiction, and there's that part of us that goes, oh man, they're just out of touch. Or when someone spends money differently, or gives money away, or sells something for the poor, we call them a radical extremist. Or, or when someone adopts a Jesus-centric sex ethic, we call them a bigot. Our world calls them a bigot. Or when we're guarding against lust in our lives, someone might say, well, you're sheltered and you're weak-minded. And the reality is, is that, and I heard this, I've heard this so many times in my life, this idea that sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. And I think that's what a lot of people grew up with in the church. Sin is bad it's because it's forbidden. Sin is actually forbidden because it's bad. It actually leads to this idea of invoking a blessing on ourselves. And this idea of invoking a blessing on ourselves to say, no, I'm fine. I can still do this and this. And really what the consequences are of that are sowing to the flesh. And last week we talked about what that looks like of sowing to the flesh. When we sow to the flesh, we actually reap from the flesh. And what Jesus is saying over and over again, that just leads to death. Like the punishment isn't God saying, I'm going to zap you. The punishment is actually the consequences of doing what we were doing, which actually lead to death. And so it's one of those things where it's, I've just had a lot of conversations with Christians um, in the wake of, you know, all the fun that's been politics in the last few years. And it's easy to blame Christians for, like, uh, it's like some political idolatry, right? Or even militarism or being pro, you know, um, 
capitalism, and, and people can get really upset about that stuff. But what about when a new sex ethic kind of comes in on things, or maybe we've managed to massage a, a reading of Scripture to our liking, or maybe when all of us really are, are so bombarded with consumerism and commitment phobia that we can't even see it. It's just so ingrained in us. And those are the ones that are the tricky ones. Those are are the ones that are hard for us to see in ourselves because they just have become so normal. 1 John 2, as we finish, is, I've already read it, but I'm going to read it one more time because I think it's really, really important for us. John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world... Love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So he mentions three things. The lust of the flesh. So we've been talking about this. Is any desire for self-gratification. It's not just sex. It's also power over people or, or money or stuff, things like that. Uh, the lust of the eyes, and simply put, this is the lust of this is the desire to possess what we see, and things that have like a visual appeal. So, coveting money, possessions, or, or other physical things, or people, um, and then the pride of life. This is that idea of autonomy. This is that don't tell me what to do. This is the the, the new Diet Coke ad. I don't know if you've seen the new Diet Coke ads, but do what makes you happy, you know? That idea is the pride of life. And all of this is a retelling of Genesis 3. Look at Genesis 3, 6. Actually, it won't be on the screen. Let me just read this to you. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and pleasing to the eye, lust of the eyes, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, the pride of life, She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. It's the same old story. It's the human condition. It's me and you. That There's these three temptations that are the core of all of it. And in our world, these temptations have been normalized and celebrated. And we have to do work to separate that out of us. Now, we've been saying this for the last few weeks, but this idea of spiritual disciplines is spiritual warfare. Now, growing up, I used to feel like guilty if I didn't um, read my Bible. I remember being in college and someone's like, did you read your Bible today? And I'm like, no, jerk. Um, But this idea like, like, if I didn't read my Bible, like, I, I felt guilty. Or if I didn't pray, I didn't feel guilty or whatever like that. But this whole conversation that we've been having the last number of weeks has actually been huge for me. And I shared this a little bit in our small group on Thursday night. That I no longer see those things as if I don't do them, I feel guilty. I actually see those things as deeply important for me to war against the things that are in me. Meaning, 
when I pray, when I read scripture, when I get alone, when I'm in silence, when I worship, when I do those things, something else is happening in me. I'm being reformed. And the things that I've, I've actually started to love and, and kind of grab onto and those new values and new ideas in my life, they actually begin to just turn to dust. And I can actually see clearer in my life. Like this is a, there's another foundational discipline that I think is super important. And it's an ancient spiritual discipline that keeps getting tweaked and twisted and massaged and even abandoned. And that's this. That's a gathering. That is the community that... what the scriptures call the ecclesia. And here's the thing. Over the years, I've been, in a, I've been a critic of this. I've been a resistor of this, of gathering. And there was a time in our lives and, that I didn't want to go, that I was just so fried out with people who were Christians that I just didn't want to go. And if you spend any time with me and you will hear me, you'll hear me be frustrated in my experience with gathering as a church. And, um, and you'll, you'll hear me trying to root things out of me that have been, <laughs> that have just grown in me as far as church and how church should be and how church has been. I don't do this because my experience with church has always been amazing. It hasn't. I don't do this because my dad or my grandfather were pastors. We don't, I don't come from a long line of pastors, although my brother's a pastor. But I don't come from a long line of pastors. I don't. And I don't do this because the money's good. Okay? <laughs> I've come to believe that we can't follow Jesus without gathering as a community. Like, you can't do it. Because you and I and we are messed up and we suffer and we celebrate and we transform and, and all of these things that happen together as a community. So here we are on our eighth birthday. And if you've been around this place for a while, you know it's a group of people who are figuring things out, pretty frustrated at things, um, shy, afraid to be vulnerable, afraid to, to stick our, our necks out. Um, but we're a group of people that are attempting to come together to be with Jesus to come to the table, to read scripture and to to wrestle with it, to wrestle with the many tensions in it. We're seeking to hear the voice of the Spirit in our lives through each other. And I'm reminded of like, oh yeah. When I get together with you, I am reminded of what things are really important and what things aren't. When I get together with you over and over again, 
all these other ideas that I get caught up with begin to get pushed back on. Like when I'm with the guys on Thursday morning and we have this thing called 10-man table and we can read scripture together and then we each share kind of what we got out of it, I am blown away almost every week at the things that I hear all the other guys are saying. Like, oh man, that's like so true. And we just have this time of just sharing with each other. And I don't care. Here, some of you are like, you're just going to tell us to come to church every week. I don't care if you think that sounds antiquated. Like, I really, really, you know me well enough to know that I don't really care what you think. Like, I say things and they're sometimes offensive. But when we make this less of a priority, okay, the chances are that other ideas and values become more of a priority. When this is lessened, other things creep in. And I've seen this. I've seen this in my own life. I've seen this experientially. I've seen this in friends of mine. And we see things like, man, I don't think I'm going to go today. And there could be something in your life that you're really in rebellion against God with. And so it's difficult for you to be in this place because you feel like you have to think about that and make decisions. And and I would just want to encourage you to do that. And then there could be a season of your life where things are just really hard and we have newborns everywhere and there's not much sleep or there's a job transition or things like that. And I get that too. And thankfully, we don't have a hard time missing football games right now. But that has in the past been a difficult thing for our church. Remember, we used to start, we started on Sunday nights at five o'clock. We used to meet at five o'clock on Sundays like a bunch of idiots and And that's when Tim Tebow was doing all these fourth quarter comebacks. And it was difficult. And then sometimes we're just lazy, right? Because waffles sound good. (laughs) Right? It just doesn't Sunday morning, I mean, listen, doesn't Sunday morning, there's times where you're just like, let's just sleep in and look up a waffle recipe. Right? If you haven't thought that, I mean, you're a liar. (laughs) My encouragement to us as we head into this ninth year is don't let this be optional. Don't let that optionality creep in too much. I know things come up and travel and this and that. I get it. Try to be less, try to make this less optional for you. I read a story Um, in a little book called Invitation to a Journey. Some of you might be reading it. I don't know. And it's the story of D.L. Moody, famous preacher. And he's actually, it's a Sunday evening, and he's sitting in front of a fireplace with a friend of his, and his friend is arguing with him, kind of debating him on the importance of actually going to church. He's just like, listen, there's hypocrites there, and and he's like, he's, I don't think I need to. I mean, I, I can have a conversation with God wherever I am. I can read the Bible wherever I am. Uh, and, and, and mind you, he's having this whole conversation with D.L. Moody. And they're in front of a fire, just like a nice, you know, winter evening fire. And D.L. Moody doesn't say anything. 
He just simply takes the fire poker and, and snags on a coal in the fire and pulls it out of the fire. And he just has it right there on the hearth and he's just kind of playing with it. And this guy's going on and on and on about it. he doesn't need to go to church and he hates church and people are hypocrites and blah, blah, blah. And finally, at the end of this guy's rant, he looks at the coal and he looks at D.L. Moody and he says, Mr. Moody, you've made your point. Because when he pulls the coal out of the fire, it begins to dim. It begins to lose. It begins to, you know, turn more black. It doesn't have the roar of the fire with it. And what's interesting is that when you put that coal in the fire, it can become the hottest version of itself that it can, right? I'm not trying to get you guys to all be the hottest version of yourself. I saw some of your smiles. Because <laughs> you all already are. Uh, just kidding. The point is, do you, do you, you know what I'm saying. When we isolate ourselves, we miss out. We miss out on the heat that God is trying to put off on us from other people and our experiences with God and how God is shaping us and challenging us. We miss out on the spirit at work together in community. That's what we're trying to be. Jesus never once asked God to take us out of the world. He never prayed that. He never prayed that at all. See, without the fire, the coal goes dark. And in the fire, the coal burns bright as it can. That's why we come together in communion. That's why we pray for one another. That's why we encourage one another. That's why, that may, whether there's an emotional experience for you here on Sunday morning or not, we are called to show up here ready, not just to sing a little bit, not just to grab a donut. We're actually called to come here ready to do something in the life of each other, to help each other root out those things in our lives that are not what God wants. And so I hope this conversation doesn't do one of two things. I hope it doesn't encourage you to be a community that's afraid of the ickiness of the world. It's not my intent at all. Okay? I want us to be a community that fire burns bright. That there's a heat to this place. That we leave here different than when we came. Not because I said something or there was a cool lyric, but because we met God here. And we met each other here in that. For Arvada High School, um, the community around and in Arvada High School. We have already collected $1,000 for this, and I'm so thankful for you. Um, if you want to be a part of this more, I'm taking more of them tomorrow. And then all this week, they're going to be handing those out. Um, and we may need a few people to help us on Friday afternoon, potentially even Saturday. So if you're interested in helping to pass out Thanksgiving baskets, um, there's a connection card in your row, and you can write your name and your email, um, and I will get a hold of you if they need us. Deal? All right, here's that point where we start talking about 